in 1 Samuel 17. An Israelite shepherd boy goes up against this monster of a man who is from the enemy army. Goliath has armor on his chest and his legs and a bronze helmet. He carries a sword and a spear and a javelin. And young David, the shepherd boy, has zero military experience. He finds that swords and armor are too cumbersome. And so he walks onto the battlefield with a sling and five stones. And you know the story. Goliath mocks David, curses him. And David responds with an answer that probably even the onlookers on his side uh, might have thought was sheer madness. He says this in 1 Samuel 17, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David vows to kill this giant and promises that that will lead to the defeat of the entire enemy army. It's been more than 3,000 years since this event took place, since David used his sling and stone to kill Goliath. And yet still today, when an underdog sports team defeats a championship team, there will be some sportscaster somewhere who will say, this was a David and Goliath story, right? We've all heard that used, the little guy beats the big guy. As believers, we can easily misapply this story by making too much of David and too little of God. Uh, David's faith was exemplary. He acts on that faith with courage, no question there. But David saw himself as a steward, as a representative of God as he walked onto that battlefield. David did not claim that his great slingshot skills were what would bring down Goliath. He was clear, Yahweh the Lord will deliver you into my hand so that when I'm done, everyone will know that it is the God of Israel who saves, that he is the great one. It's his battle to win. I am simply his vessel that he's choosing to use in defeating you. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 58, we are continuing our study of Isaiah. And in case you didn't know it, you and I desperately need a mighty warrior. David was not that mighty warrior. It was God, ultimately, who was the mighty warrior, and we need the same. We need a mighty warrior. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are at this moment in the crosshairs of spiritual warfare. There is a very real enemy, a powerful, active enemy who's bigger and badder than Goliath, who wants to lure you into sin who wants to ruin your life, who wants to lure you into complacency when it comes to your relationship with the Lord. This enemy wants you to ignore Jesus Christ or at best give Jesus lip service and not heartfelt worship. This enemy wants you to believe that death is better than life, that your discouragement or your dissatisfaction or your latest disappointment is just another indication that nobody really cares about you and your life is virtually worthless and you'd be better off dead. Or if you did stay alive, then you best look out for yourself and provide entirely for yourself because nobody else will. 
This enemy wants to entice you into fleeting pleasures that would drag you away from union with Christ, with fellowship with him, drag you away from the fellowship of the body of believers. He wants your life stained by sin in such a way so that people do not see the glory of God through you, so that they do not see his power at work in you. And he wants you to believe that a guy like David was really only victorious because he was extremely brave and very skillful, and you are not, and therefore you're a failure. You cannot possibly be a servant of God, and you will displease him. If you don't find your five smooth stones and have accurate skills with them, then you're probably useless as his servant. This morning in Isaiah 58 and 59, we are going to be reminded of our desperate need of a mighty warrior. We, we needed him to save us, to rescue us from sin and death, but we need him now to guard us, to fight for us, to deliver us safely to our eternal home. And, and the way the Lord teaches this to us in 58 and 59 of Isaiah is first, by setting the, the standard, if you will, calling us to a standard of sincere worship and, and godly living. And he establishes that throughout chapter 58, where he says, this, this is what I am calling you to. This is what life and worship are to look like. And he does that both from the negative and the positive. Not like this, but, but like this. And we will be reminded again and again, as we have through Isaiah, that a profession of faith in the Lord is also to be consistent with a life that is lived for him. The life is to, to demonstrate the profession. It, it, in some ways, it reminded me as I'm going through this this week of James and, and James saying to us that faith without works is dead, that, that if you profess something, your life should be consistent with that. And such works are only possible because of God's grace and his help and his strength. And then what Isaiah will do is remind us of the failures of his people, of many who professed faith in Yahweh and, and yet fell in ways that blatantly defied their profession of faith. In the warfare with sin, they were yielding to the flesh instead of obeying God. And finally, at the very end of chapter 59, we will be reminded that there is a righteous and mighty warrior who is strong to save and strong to keep his people, who is actively working in us and through us and our behalf to bring glory to himself and to cause us to persevere in obedience. The same warrior who used David to crush Goliath and the Philistines is the same redeemer warrior who empowers you and I to be sanctified, to be living differently, to be set apart and to walk in obedience to him. So we start first with this standard that God sets, and he begins in chapter 58, verse 1. And just the opening verse, this powerful statement when he says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. There should be no mistaking the fact that what God is about to say, he wants heard. That it is so important that he says, don't just say this, shout it loudly. The equivalent of a, of a trumpet. We, if we're honest, we talk about sin. We tend to talk about sin in more quiet tones. 
especially if it's someone else's sin. We, we don't want to talk too much about it, and, and so we're, we're reserved when it comes to issues of sin. And yet God is saying here right from the beginning, you need to hear this. I'm going to speak loudly, and this is about your transgression. So verse 2, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. If we had just read verse 2, this might be confusing because it seems to be a good indication of where we're going. You seek me daily and delight to know my ways. The key, though, is the, the little preposition that follows that statement. You seek me daily and delight to know my ways. ESV says, as if. You could also um, say like. And, and the idea is you do this as if uh, you were a nation that was actually righteous. You are simulating righteousness. You, you are doing things that, that seem to be righteous, but he's making it very clear that this is, this is in in, in name only, in, in terms of just your outer actions, you seem to be this, but you really are not. Because he says you're, you're actually doing things, and he unfolds it in verses 3 and 4, such, such that when you, you fast, when you withhold food from yourself and you fast, you pretend to be humble and you, you, you're bowed down before me, but what I see is violence and oppression. You say, Yahweh, look, we are fasting Pay attention. I'm, I'm here at church. See me? See what I'm doing? And he says, in, in a sense, you're, you're worse than, than that little kid who, who smiles and holds his sibling's hand when mommy looks, and then as soon as mommy turns around, pinches his sibling as hard as he can and acts like, I didn't do anything. What, what, what's the problem here? And he's saying, you're just a hypocrite. And God, this is why verse 1 begins with that, shout this. God despises this hypocrisy. This isn't a, a small problem that needs an adjustment. There is a nation of people who have adopted this sort of false religious system where they believe that they are showing a zeal for Yahweh when in fact they are mocking him by the way that they despise and harm other people, by their treatment of those around them. They're, they're, this, this is attacking people who are made in God's image while standing before God and, and carrying on activities of worship. It's, it, it's similar, in effect, we just went through the communion service and what Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians of the, the believers, those who are professing faith in Christ, who are coming and casting out the poorer, weaker people and saying, you wait outside while we worship inside. It's that same sort of hypocrisy that God despises. And so he's confronting them here. And the end game of their religious activity, he says, ultimately, is to, to please self. And so his warning there at the end in verse 4 is, your voice is not heard. 
all of this activity that you're doing, I, I am not listening to your, your supplications, your desires for me to provide for you because you are completely out of fellowship and Yahweh is not hearing them. We saw this last week. It continues on through these chapters and really will come to the climax in, in chapter 59. But God hates hypocrisy. He especially despises when his people profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and yet live like the world, who, who do not love others, who do not care about others, who harm and oppress others. And God is calling us to a standard that is different from the two-faced attitudes of the world. So verse 5, he now is going to ask a series of questions. And, and again, this is just setting the bar. Here's what sincere worship looks like. And he does this through a series of questions. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What he's saying here is, if you really want to understand, you're presenting this fasting to me, you're denying yourself in some way as if it, it, the external act itself deserves my attention. I'm telling you this is about both your heart and the actions that flow from your heart. So if you say that you're humbling yourself before me and you think that the mere denying yourself of food is the act that shows that, it does not. The external activity itself is not enough. He says, first, if you're truly fasting, you will grieve your own sin. That posture of being humbled and bowed down in verse 5 He's remarking in the sense that they're, they're, they're doing the external posture, but there's not the heart that matches with that. There's not the, the sense of humility and contriteness and repentance of sin. And so they, they may have a spotless attendance record at worship. They may give to the poor. They may say loud prayers. They may deny themselves a meal or two. But if your heart is unmoved, if, you're, if your actions toward others demonstrate no difference from the world. If you don't humbly seek to, to see your own sin and confess that and acknowledge that, he says, that's, that's what I question as acceptable. That, that's, that's the point at which you need to stop and not just going through the motions. In verse 6, he speaks of true worship as being that which seeks to end the evil treatment of others. When he speaks of loosing the bonds, he's, he's talking to those who have the ability to help those who are being harmed, to help those who are being oppressed in some way. And, and he says, is there a way that you can help someone out from the evil under which they are trapped? Is, is there a way that you can release them from the hurt of another sin? We, we pray for God to end the, the horrors of abuse. We despise it. The call here is, if you're able to do something about it, be merciful and help. Help the one who is suffering. Come and find a way to help loosen the, the bonds of evil. And then in verse 7, he says, if it's in your power, help those who are poor and hungry. Don't merely look at them and acknowledge them. 
These are things, and again, I, I think this just echoes, James echoes much of these things in James chapter 2, when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's the heart of what God is communicating here in Isaiah 58. The faith in the Lord you profess must be more than mere words. It must be changing you, causing you to live in a way that is consistent with the will of God. And if you are, if you are loving neighbor mercifully, sacrificially as self, then Isaiah 58.8 says this, he turns from the negative to the positive, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Isn't that a beautiful picture? If we live out the righteousness and justice and love of our, of our Lord, people will see him through us. That's really the picture here is the presence of God is evident. His, his righteousness is now seen. They, they see that we live by a different standard, a different calling. And so his glory is magnified and he will guide your steps. Isaiah 58 goes on to say, your prayers will be heard. The Lord's blessings will flow. He will be your strength. Verse 11 really kind of summarizes this all and says, the Lord will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. He's saying, this is the joy and the delight that I long to, to give you, to pour through you to others if, if you will obey me, if you will love others and serve them. And so chapter 58 is God calling his people to this high and glorious standard of, of sincerity in our worship, of sincerity in our living, a, a faith that is evident in the purity of our lives and in how we relate to one another. And then, as is so often the case with Isaiah, comes chapter 59, and we're reminded that this isn't always the case. Chapter 59, verse 1, Behold, look, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. One of the things he had said in chapter 58 is, you're trying to manipulate me to get what you want. And you're only really complaining not because of what you're doing, but because it seems like I'm not hearing you, because it seems like you're not getting your way. And you're tempted now to think this is a shortcoming with God, that we're going through the activities, but God somehow isn't paying attention to us. God is somehow not able to hear us. And so what he says here at the beginning of 59 is, I want to assure you, the fact that your prayers are not being heard and you're not getting what you want is no failure on my part. I am strong to save. I am Clear in my hearing, God did not lack strength to do all that his people needed, nor was he unable to hear their prayers. What caused their worship, their so-called worship, to not get the response they hoped for was the fact that they were displeasing God in their activity, and it wasn't actually worship. Our sin, he describes here, builds this barrier between us and God. He uses the word separation to, to, to speak of this parting, and it's the same language that's used 
In Genesis chapter 1, in the creation story, when it speaks of the separation between the, the heavenly clouds and the earth below, that God, as he forms all of this, puts a separation between the two, the, the water that is in the clouds and that which is in the earth. He's made this, this chasm, this gap between the two. And now Isaiah is using this language to speak of the separation that is erected by our sin, that which we have placed between us and our God so that he does not hear he says, you're lifting bloody hands in prayer. You're singing these so-called praises with lying, wicked lips. Again, should be reminiscent of James. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. James is picking up on themes from Isaiah of this total inconsistency between the, the profession and what comes out of the mouth. Isaiah 59 just continues to unfold how this people who have encountered the high and holy God, the transcendent God, are, are, and are, have been called to live as his servants and to expose his glory are instead reverting back to treating others without fairness, to being dishonest, to, to lacking mercy, to, to being violent. They don't run from evil, but rather they are attracted to evil. They aren't peacemakers, but instead they are quarrelers. They, they seek to divide and, and create more contention. Therefore, in light of that, verse 9 says, Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. He says, don't you see... That, that what you're doing here, there, there is no righteousness. As I, I see the way that you, you behave, there's no keeping of justice. There's no light. A people who should know better are instead embracing sin, and they are dragging, that sin is dragging them from fellowship with me, with the Lord. We are not loving him or loving neighbor, and so justice is turned back. Verse 14 essentially says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter, and it displeased the Lord. Friends, let me just make an application here. We are not Old Testament Israel. God's law is not the law of our land. But we are called to be salt and light in this culture. And so when we look at this picture of hoping for light and darkness coming and gloom and justice being turned back and truth stumbling in the public square and uprightness cannot enter, there is the reality that we, we do live in a, a sinful, lost world, but we are called to have an effect on that world, a, a, a salt effect, a restraining effect on, on evil, not not simply abiding by it or going along with it or, or hoping not to be canceled and so saying nothing about it. We are called to still have a loving but real restraining effect on evil so that we would speak truth to that. So when we see truth stumbling in the public square, it's not on, on our count that it is. We ought to be speaking it. We are called to be light. We are called to be showing people that, that the hope that they are looking for, the satisfaction and delight that they are looking for, will not be found in earthly pleasures. They will be found in Christ alone and in the hope of his gospel. And, and so we are called to have this effect on our culture. For as much as the world and the culture and the daily news may raise your blood pressure and kindle your anger, 
We are called to be different in such a way that they see our good works and that God then uses that to bring glory to himself. They may despise that God. They may despise our good works, but God forbid that they don't see them from us. They should see that we love what is pure and right and we speak forward to that and we are desiring to to hold people back from the desires of the flesh. So reading Isaiah 59 is, is not intended to cause us to sort of just shake our heads at these foolish Israelites of 2,700 years ago. Rather, Isaiah is warning us that sin is very real and a very real enemy, and it will interfere with our fellowship with God. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are, you are not separated from him, but there is clearly a sense in which my sin will blind me to justice and his righteousness. My sin will cause me not to listen to his voice and to hear him well, and my sin consequently speaks about even in 1 Peter, in the, in the, the praying of the man in 1 Peter, my, sin, my, my prayers may not be heard because I am wallowing in disfellowship with him when I am embracing the flesh and not worshiping him sincerely. So all of that to say, this is not then about human effort, about finding our five stones and our sling. This is about our need for a warrior. This is about our, our desperate need for the help and grace of Jesus Christ and his spirit to humbly see our sin and to Acknowledge our sin and confess and repent of our sin and obey him. That's the hope then of the last part of Isaiah 59. That's where this passage turns. In verse 15, it says that the Lord saw man's sin and it displeased him that there was no justice. And then Isaiah describes God's response, which begins in verse 16 of Isaiah 59. God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. The the greatest enemy to our obedience, the, the enemy of sincere worship, the enemy to loving God with our whole being and loving our neighbor as ourself, the enemy that wants unrighteousness to rule the world and injustice to prevail and spread like a tidal wave, that enemy is sin, and we are in a real spiritual battle with an enemy who wants us as far from sincere worship and living a life of spirit-filled integrity, he wants us as far from that as the east is from the west that we would not know intimate fellowship with our Savior. We have an enemy who wants to to build the very bricks and hand them to us so that we would erect that wall between us and intimacy with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are not strong enough to win this battle and defeat this enemy on our own. Just as young David was not strong enough to defeat Goliath on his own. That's why when David enters the battlefield to what looks like certain defeat, 
He does so, it says, so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David comes with no sword and no spear, enters the battle, not because he thought he was the strongest man, because he looked around at the Israel army and said, I am the most cunning, the bravest, and the strongest, and and therefore I should go. No, he looked around and saw no one going and said, I'm going to enter this battle with God. The the Lord will give me the victory. The Lord will defeat this enemy. And, And the glory then will go to him when this weak vessel without weaponry and without armor defeats the giant. And so here in Isaiah 59:16, it shows this picture of God, God describing what he saw, which is what he already knows, and that is man does not win these battles alone. It is not by man's own willpower or determination. We must have a mighty warrior. And so when we get to verse 17, that, that verse should sort of echo to you of Ephesians 6, right? And the, the armor, putting on the whole armor of God. And what Isaiah 59 is reminding us of clearly as it sets the foundation for Ephesians 6 is it is the whole armor of God. It is God's armor that he is now equipping us with. He is the mighty warrior who here in Isaiah 59 portrays that he will don the armor. He will crush the power of sin and death. And just as David pointed out in 1 Samuel 17, there's no sword or spear. The the Lord doesn't carry armament into this battle. There are no weapons in his hand. Rather, it says his arm is strong. He speaks. When God wars against his enemies, they are beaten by the power of his word, by the fact that God speaks and crushes those who oppose him. When God wars against sin and death on our behalf, he is the victorious warrior, and we, the people, benefit from his victory. We get all of the blessing and all of the reward from what our Savior Jesus Christ has done. We are redeemed by his victory. And apart from him, we are as hopeless and helpless as a young shepherd boy with a slingshot against a giant with a javelin and a sword and a spirit. But with him, by his strength, with the mighty warrior at work in us, the Lord of hosts saves. And the warrior redeemer has come. And he has won that victory. Jesus Christ has defeated sin. And so that now he calls us as his children now to be his servants and to ultimately fulfill what has been the calling all along. And if you look at verse 21 of Isaiah 59, that ends this section. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. The Lord says covenant. He's saying, this is what I am going to do. This is what I promise. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This this is our hope for the high calling that we read about in chapter 58 of, of living out a life that is obeying him that is sincere in its worship. This is how we are enabled to live sincerely before our king, not because we've found the five smooth stones of an effective life, but because we step forward into battle with faith, entirely dependent on our redeemer, warrior, king, to be the mighty one who was strong enough 
to defeat sin on the cross and defeat death by his resurrection. And now he says, his great power is ours if we will humbly turn to him in weakness and humility. His spirit enters his people. His spirit now fills us and enables us to speak his word. And he speaks of both of those here in verse 21. His spirit and his word, the things with which he has equipped us, the one thing that is described in Ephesians 6 as an offensive weapon is the word because we're taking God's word and we're speaking his truth by the power of his spirit. And so greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He is our warrior king. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have, you have conquered. There is no doubt or question in the minds of your children as we have gathered here this morning that we, we would be unable to take on sin, to take on the enemy of Satan, that, that we would be able to do this with our bare hands in our flesh, that somehow by our willpower and determination, because Lord, we've, we've tried, we've all tried, against persistent habits or addictions or emotions that have seemed so overwhelming, tried in our flesh, Lord, and have come to realize and know that it is only, only by the awesome power of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to break sin's hold, its power that came to, to cause the enslaving power of sin to be broken, by his death on the cross, and then by rising mightily from the dead, showing that the, the fearsome power of death had been beaten. Lord Jesus, you are our mighty warrior. You are the one who has accomplished all that is necessary for us for life and godliness. And so we, we come humbly before you asking for your help, asking for your spirit to fill us, instruct us, guide us, help us as we meditate on your word, that we would live out what, what, what's promised in Isaiah 59, 21, that your word would be on our lips, that it would be in our hearts, that we would speak it forth to your glory, that those around us in the world would, would hear about our warrior King Christ and how he has come to be a redeemer. Lord, I pray if there's anyone listening here or online this morning who who feels utterly hopeless and discouraged and abandoned, Lord, might today be the day when your word, your spirit, your people, Lord, would, would become a source of conviction, both exposing sin but showing the hope that is in Christ alone and showing that there is sweet fellowship with this king and there is fellowship with his body and there is hope and encouragement for life. Lord, by trusting in Jesus by turning from our sin and believing fully in him. Help us to be a church family that reflects the greatness of our mighty warrior king, even as we go from here this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.